someplace there's got to be a place where people are free to discuss what they know and what they don't know and to find out what they can. Radioactive Waves is presented by the National Museum of Nuclear Science and History. Together, we will explore all things atomic, nuclear, and radioactive, along with some interesting surprises from our museum's collections and connections. Hello, I'm Anna Part, and welcome to Radioactive Waves. I'm David. How are you, Anna? I'm doing pretty well. I am excited to be celebrating Black History Month this this episode. Yeah, it looks like you've got some uh, some neat stuff written for us. Uh, a lot of things that I had never heard before, um, and you know, just some cool insight into, especially like. The Manhattan Project and, and, you know, race and things like that uh, in that context. So I'm looking forward to what you've got. Yeah, I think it's going to be an interesting episode. I know that I learned a lot while I was doing research for this, and I'm hoping that our listeners can learn along with us. So one of the reasons uh, that Black History Month is so important to celebrate, uh, as well as other months or events that honor minorities or marginalized populations uh, in history, is because sometimes these histories can be overlooked or ignored. Uh, And when I say sometimes, I mean a lot of the time. Uh, And that's something that in recent history, we've been working to uh, to to fix or to fill the gaps in the historical record and try to make sure that these narratives don't get forgotten. And and you and I were actually, um, you know, speaking about this just a little bit prior to the starting of recording. Uh, you know, you mentioned as in every other month. Uh, you know, these these are uh, topics that are important uh, year round, of course, but we do take yeah. um, some extra special time in, in February to set that aside and say, hey, um, let's uh, draw attention to this issue uh, and, you know, give a little bit of honor to where honor is due. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the reason that this is necessary is because uh, this this quote is technically uh, attributed to Winston Churchill, but it's kind of just a you know a, a a fact about history that history is written by the victors. But this idea can be actually extrapolated and becomes uh, like more accurate uh, when you say history is written by those who are in power. So that means that what information is saved is determined by whoever is saving the information. The information. Yeah, through their uh, lens or through their perspective. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's, that's definitely the case. Um, now, when, we're, when you're looking, you know, for profiles of uh, different individuals and things like that in um, our archives or elsewhere, um, mm-hmm. how is it, I mean, there were a lot of, um, you know, different ethnicities and, and different uh, types of individual on the Manhattan Project, um, but you may have a little bit of difficulty coming across uh, at their histories. Is there um, a reason that we can't find profiles for a lot of these uh, veterans of the Manhattan Project? Yeah, absolutely. Um, sometimes the records just 
don't exist or or they exist in a very limited capacity like um a good a good example of this would be we have a copy of every photograph taken for security id badges at los alamos for a certain year but this archive only includes the names and images of these workers um you notice i say a certain year we don't even know what year we know that it was (laughs) early in the manhattan project but it's possible that some of these were taken in different months it's even possible that these were taken in different years um well when and so this when when secrecy is secrecy is such a priority um Mm -hmm. you know things sometimes get buried so deeply that (laughs) those that are are you know maybe as you know as you spoke about those that are in power at that time are the only ones that have that information and when they um either move on one way or the other that information is lost with them uh yeah and i think that's one of the costs of secrecy is that um absolutely it's a secret (laughs) yeah yeah and so that's part of part of the problem with the manhattan project is not only are uh is information being intentionally obscured but there's also an aspect of uh unintentional obscuring of history that happens naturally so like even if we have their name and picture a lot of these men were using nicknames and were known by their nicknames Uh, a lot of the women would have changed their names when they got married Uh, additionally civilians are a lot harder to track because they don't have a military record um and and if there is a civilian that is easy to track it's usually because they had really well documented kind of famous careers like you know we we have plenty of pictures and information about oppenheimer and fermi but you know their assistants might be harder to track if you know, that they, they didn't have this fabulous, famous career. And, and that makes sense. The, um, you know, the ones that were likely to be known, uh, you know, even during, not necessarily afterward, but even during, uh, we do have all kinds of information on, on these individuals because they were, um, you know, the, the nerd pop icons. They, <laughs> they were, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. they're the ones that a lot of people have dug deep into to find out about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the time, uh, they had a lot of record because they had a lot of communication that went back and forth. Uh, whereas, yeah. like, say, the the lesser known, the ones that were working on things, you know, kind of more behind the scenes, uh, we don't have that information. Now, you, you mentioned, like, Los Alamos, but... Uh, Los Alamos was only part of the Manhattan Project. Something that, that you know, I, I've heard reference to, but is there a reason that we don't have more information about the black workers in specific uh, in Oak Ridge? Well, this is a, that's a great question. All of these problems that I've just explained about keeping historical records, particularly within the Manhattan Project, is then doubled when it comes to marginalized or undervalued populations. The majority of black workers in Oak Ridge were not scientists. They were average Joes doing cleaning and cooking and more menial labor than than the scientists. So 
not only were those mainly civilian jobs. Yeah, yeah. If I could, you know, kind of interject, I think um, yeah, yeah. we've noticed or I've noticed, you know, the more as I've you know worked around the museum and, and um, had access to more of these histories as a younger person, you know, because I'm an old person now, I guess. But anyway, prior to learning this, I always pictured, uh, you know, when you hear about the Manhattan Project and you heard about, you know, Los Alamos, Oak Ridge, all these kind of things, you picture labs. That's it, you know, because that yeah. was the the uh, the glory part. But, uh, you know, it, it's often ignored that these were towns. These you know, mm-hmm. these were not something that every single person living there was a scientist. Uh, you know, we, we yeah. talked about uh, when we uh, spoke to Hal Bell, uh, his wife mm-hmm. was a teacher. Uh, she was an art exactly. teacher. And so that to me, you know, it kind of when I heard that at first, it set me back just a little bit because, I mean, OK, now you have to think of, OK, not only is this a town, this is a town with schools. Not only is this a town mm-hmm. with schools, this is a town with a wonderful art, <laughs> you know, uh, program in these schools. And, and it really kind of humanizes the Manhattan Project. And yeah. so when you're talking about the, you know, these, these smaller populations, you do have to understand that, okay, not everyone on these sites was a scientist. We had, uh, yeah. somebody was a barber, somebody um, mm-hmm. had to work on the cars, somebody was a teacher at, in an art school. Uh, and yeah. so, you know, to find these histories is going to be a lot more difficult because if you were to ask me the name of the guy when I went to go get my oil changed last week, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm not going to be able to tell you his name. But at the, on the other hand, if I meet some fancy hoity-toity, uh, you know, mm-hmm. person, I'm going to remember their name and I'm going to remember that encounter uh, instead of saying, okay, well, I handed over my credit card to some guy in a hat. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, no, yeah. I just, I didn't, I didn't mean to, to interrupt there, but it is just something no, that no. I've recently kind of uh, really been enlightened to is the fact that these uh, you know, the, when we hear the Manhattan Project, we're not just talking labs. We're talking lives uh, that we're in. Absolutely. Here. You know, David, you bring up a great example of, you know, a, a historical record that we only have because we are lucky enough to know Hal Bell. We would have no record of Reggie Bell unless someone was specifically researching teachers in Oak Ridge without the knowing him personally. So when you don't have these connections and you don't have someone else keeping a record for you until it becomes relevant to whatever specific historian is looking for, they get overlooked. And that's how you end up not having a really well fleshed out, uh, section of oral histories from black workers in Oak Ridge. It's just the people who were keeping records, the people who were focusing on these things weren't focusing on the black experience. They were focusing on the science, the scientific experience of these towns. Um, And so we, you know, the Atomic Heritage Foundation was able to record some really important oral histories. I suggest you go check those out. Um, 
these these oral histories centered black voices uh but this was only possible because of a grant they were given a grant in order to help fill the arc fill the archival gap uh, that was caused by bureaucracy and passive racism, as well as active, I'm sure, somewhere in the line. Somebody decided, oh, we don't need this in our record. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a matter of taking the time to go find the records that do exist while acknowledging that some of the records just aren't going to be there. And when you mentioned the Atomic History Foundation, um, there was one. There is one on there's um, that's part of that uh, that Black Voices that I listened to just recently um, mm-hmm. of Ronald E. Micken. So I really suggest you check this one out. Um, you know, it's it's a long one. You're going to be in uh, for a while. I think it's an hour and twenty four minutes. But yeah, it is one of those. You know that luckily somebody took the time to get these recordings down. Uh, while people that were there are still around, <laughs> uh, you know, because yeah, sometimes exactly. uh, you think of something and it's too late. But we do still have, yeah. uh, you know, some of these these gems uh, that are that are around mm-hmm. that that they, we can speak to these folks. Now we we talked about how there are other, you know, that the other people that are on site, you know, at, at these projects. But there were black scientists also. So is there a reason? And I know you kind of touched on it that we don't have a little bit more information about the black scientists that worked on the Manhattan Project. Well, while I was doing research for this, like like you said, there were a handful of black scientists who were, you know, in the academic scientific aspect of this project, uh, but. Not that many. Uh, We have 17 about that we have some kind of record of. Um, There might be more out there. If you find any, please let me know. I would love to add their information to our website. Um, But really, uh, Shane Landrum, who is a historian who talked to the... uh... No, I'm going to try that again. Yeah. But um, to answer your question better than I could, uh, a historian, Shane Landrum, says the existence of black atomic scientists within a culture which denied black men's intellect demonstrated the possibilities of science as an egalitarian career. That there were so few was a testament to the structural racism of American education. So Whoa. this is what this is saying is <laughs> there were yeah, that black was heavy. scientists. Yeah, that, that was heavy. And it's clear that science was seen as a career that potentially anyone could do if they had the right education. But the American education system of the 30s, 40s, and 50s was not going to be supporting a black population that could then translate that education and those skills into the Manhattan Project. So it's it's a chicken and the egg situation where the cultural racism made it harder for black students to get the degrees they needed to be a part of a program that 
technically was open to anyone who had the skills. I think that that sums it up pretty well. I mean, um, if, you know, if you're not able to uh, prove your worth, you know, uh, then someone's not going to expect your worth. <laughs> uh, and then it it's a cycle. Yeah. 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 So um, this also extends to the fact that uh, as far as we can tell i say we there was a a study that i'm going off of that the government uh looked (laughs) into in 2019 you and the government yeah yeah Yeah. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) about there potentially being um black workers at los alamos during the uh during the manhattan project but that's kind of been not necessarily debunked but it's just Again, the record isn't there. If there were people of color who were working there, we only have records for the Hispanic and Native populations. Um, and, you know, that, that but there were, <clears throat> but there were these 17 black scientists and almost exclusively they were working at the Chicago Met Lab and then there were a few at Columbia University. Um, but the, the majority of these people were not promoted within the national lab system in the same way that their white counterparts were. So in this list of 16, 17 black scientists that we do have records for, three of which were women, which we will get to in a moment, um, a majority of them became teachers after the war. So that means that they went back to civilian work. Um, there are a handful that went into the nuclear industry, including the lab system, the national lab system. And those are those individuals are the easiest to track and to find information about and to learn more about. But even still, it's just not as clear of a narrative as... Um, I'm going to use Fermi again. Fermi emigrated to this country, uh, started, you know, doing physics, was hired, and then continued to do his work throughout, you know, this university, this university, this university. So I don't know that reading out these individuals' names in a list is necessarily doing them the justice that they deserve. This this podcast is not trying to go for three hours um (laughs) and you know without context without being able to talk about them as individuals it seems um, a little bit disrespectful so what i will tell the listener to do is to go check out the knoxville news on their website has an article from 2018 called 15 african americans who were hidden heroes of the manhattan project And although that doesn't get all 17, it gets a big chunk of this list and lets you get to know them as individuals a little bit, uh, a little bit better. Um, I found it really interesting. I I will briefly mention the three women because I think that is so exciting and so interesting that a marginalized population inside a minority population was (laughs) able to you know even even just three even just three is very exciting and important 
and that's Mildred Summers, who was a Met Lab technician and uh, who went to Hanford and then after the war was employed at Argonne National Labs. Blanche J. Lawrence, Met Lab, who she worked in the Met Lab again at Chicago University, University of Chicago. Um, she was in the health division and was a research assistant and then a technician at Argo National Labs. And she became a junior biochemist within four years of starting work there. So a really very remarkable woman. Um, And then Caroline B. Parker, who is the only, as far as I can find, the only black scientist to work at the Dayton Project. And she was a physicist um, uh, at the Dayton site during during the during the manhattan project yeah that's awesome that's that's overcoming a lot of obstacles to get to where they were i'm sure especially at that time absolutely um so now that we've sorted out why this this gap in the historical record exists and maybe a little bit about what we can do to try and fix that let's try and fill in this archival gap with some knowledge about a man that we do have a little bit of information about and that's where we come to jasper b jeffries jasper b jeffries was a physicist working at the metallurgical laboratory i've, I've said met lab a couple of times that's i'm gonna keep saying met lab but it's met short lab, for yes. met lab is metallurgical short for the laboratory yes. short for the <laughs> yeah. university of chicago's metallurgical laboratory yes perfect thank you um <laughs> well uh, jasper b jeffries was working in this department uh in the instruments division at at the university during the manhattan project Jeffries would eventually become a member of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, which is actually how I learned about Jeffries in the first place. Uh, The Bulletin of Atomic Scientists actually came to uh, the collections department at the Nuclear Museum and asked us for an image of Jeffries that was on the Atomic Heritage Foundation website, but it was really, it was not a very good image it was just not uh high quality it was from it was like cropped from a much larger group photo um and i thought you know i wonder if we have anything better than that and i went and was looking through the atomic heritage foundation's uh server and i was able to find who donated that uh that group picture of the instruments division and um I would like to thank James Shoke for his donation. He he sent the Atomic Heritage Foundation several like a like a pack of a bunch of photographs that they had on their server. And wouldn't you know, um, I was able to find an image of Jeffries that had not previously been identified as him um, in the same folder. So. Uh, that's pretty now good that investigative image, journalism there, Anna. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> thanks. I mean, that's that's just it is when a piece of the record exists but just hasn't been sought out, that's really all it is, is you have to seek out uh, the information in order to fill the fill the archival gap, fill in the missing pieces. Um and yeah, the image 
was just had been overlooked because it it was being used in the context of Mr. Shoke's experience and life uh, in the Met Lab. And so as soon as you shift the focus, you might find something unexpected. It's a great photograph as well. It's uh, J- Jasper uh, Jeffries is in his lab coat um, with uh, a few of his co-workers from the instruments division and they're all hanging out and uh, smiling outside somewhere. Uh, it looks like they're having fun. It looks, I mean, this is just me. I'm sure this is a historical for me to read into this, but it, it certainly looks like uh, Jeffries and his co-workers uh, are all, you know, out on a lunch break. It looks like a glorious, glorious day just waiting to get back into the lab. And somebody said, you know, gather around. Let me take this. Let me take this snapshot. That's definitely like, like the vibe that it puts off. Yeah, for sure. Because of this experience with uh, my experience with the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists coming to me and saying, hey, could you please check this out? I got I got really interested in Jasper B. Jeffries. He's he seems like a very interesting man. Um, he was born on Monday, March 15th, 1912 in Winston-Salem, North Carolina to Edna and Brown Jeffries. Um, I keep saying Jasper B. Jeffries. The B stands for Brown. So it, he was actually a junior. Um, yeah, it's just interesting. Yeah. Uh, Part of the history. He was the... Yeah, exactly. Uh, he was the eldest of three brothers, and he earned his bachelor's degree in 1933 from West Virginia State College. Uh, while Jeffries was working on his degree, he was actually enrolled in a class that had a particularly remarkable woman named Dr. Angie Turner King as the professor. So in 1933, a black woman was teaching a STEM subject in higher education in the 1930s. <laughs> that's awesome. That's incredible. Yeah. That's awesome. yeah. I, 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 she, I ended up looking quite a bit into her uh, while I was doing research for this episode just because she it seems remarkable. Um, and I think perhaps we could do a whole episode about her in the future um, because she was, uh, uh, she did do chemistry. But um, uh, uh, n- not today. Not today. Today we're talking about. <laughs> well, we're talking we do about, one about women in science, and then we can. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. So apparently. Jeffries had an affinity for remarkable women, and uh, he married his wife, Marguerite DeFay, in 1937. She, she, in her own right, was remarkable for holding a master's degree in social work from the University of Chicago, where Jeffries would later go on to work during World War II. And the Jeffries eventually had three daughters, Edna, named after his mother, Hazel, and Marguerite, named after her own mother, and they also had a son named Jasper Brown the Third. That's why I mentioned that Jasper okay, the Jeffries part, was right. a junior. Yeah, Jeffries attained his Master's of Science and in, in the Physical Sciences, as it was called then, uh, from the University of Chicago in 1940, and he was hired as a physicist on the Manhattan Project, working for the Met Lab Instrument Section from 1943 to 46. So he was an outstanding enough student that they called him up three years later and were like, hey, do you, 
do you maybe want a job? And although other black scientists were hired by the Met Lab, it appears that he may have been the only black man working in the instrument section based on the group photograph that I mentioned earlier. The one that had been like cropped uh, as his right. like profile picture. And it was like quite grainy because it's several people in this big uh, picture. David, do you think and- you could possibly explained us a little bit about what he might have been doing because that's where i (laughs) I, get very confused i know and and he was a scientist um, (laughs) might have been doing is probably the uh the the key uh to that one there um again a lot of it was was secret this was you know manhattan project stuff uh we do know that the met lab or the university of chicago's metallurgical laboratory um, metallurgical mm-hmm. is just the study of metals and, and their production and refinement okay. and all those kind of things. Um, if you, but how never... is that, how are, but how are metals relevant to the Manhattan project? Why did that matter in the Manhattan project? Exactly. Well, there's a thing called plutonium and, uh, they, in order to I've produce, yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. This thing, plutonium, which is element 94. And that was the. Uh, the elusive element that they were attempting to get the most plutonium they possibly could. So plutonium production was huge in the Manhattan Project. Um, Even when we go back and listen to some of Hal Bell's interviews, Uh we see that in Oak Ridge, they were looking at different ways, what is the fastest, most efficient way uh, to produce plutonium. And it was a whole brand new something. And okay. that in that because of its radioactivity, it kind of offered all kinds of challenges uh, in the ways that it was handled. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. it also, because it came from uranium, you know, mm-hmm. they, they'll do the, the slow moving neutrons and, and, you know, there's a little bit of science behind, well, a lot of science behind that. But they'll take the uranium, the, the metal uranium, uh, and they will refine it until oh, okay. they... Uh, get plutonium. So, so uranium is the metal. Plutonium is also can be but derived. It's, it's down the decay chain, essentially, okay. uh, kind of a forced okay. decay chain uh, of interesting of uranium uh, and plutonium uh, because of those uh, slow moving neutrons is fissile. Uh, we can, um, you know, induce fast fission and that is what they needed to create a boom uh and so gotcha. uh to continue to research on this and to continue to you know produce these bombs they needed a way to produce the plutonium and so uh the met lab was you know one of the huge ones we had the chicago pile which we mm-hmm. actually have at the if you visit the museum we have a lego version of the Chicago yeah. Pile, which is part of this whole MetLab yeah. uh, structure um, or series of structures. Well, and we've got some uh, some of the individual blocks, the graphite blocks Correct. from the, graphite the Chicago from Pile the Chicago in our collection. Pile. Yes, and that's yeah. all the MetLab. So to know exactly what Jeffries may have been doing, uh, instrument section is, you know, usually going to be the ones that are measuring, okay, are we getting things right? Uh, a lot of it is weight, which is a, you know, kind of, mm. you know, when you're talking about atomic mass, you know, there's a lot of different uh, instrumentations they would use. And depending on the process they were using, you know, to produce the plutonium, 
you know, the instrument section could be involved in they're the ones that are checking things out uh, or possibly the ones that were building the instruments. They're developing brand new instruments. These are not something that even existed oh. at the time. Uh, and so I hadn't even thought about you that. have to, okay, we need to figure this out. Well, we need a tool to figure this out. Okay, well, we have to figure out how yeah. to make a tool to figure this out. So, uh, I mean, of course, all of this is conjecture, but that, that kind of goes back to the uh, the secrecy aspect uh, this is yeah. what Jeffries may have been doing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, what yeah. he might have been doing. I can't say any of this, you know, with with certainty or even with high probability. But these are the things that were happening, and so okay. developing these instruments, developing these tools, uh, or using the tools uh, would probably, I would assume, be part of that sure. instruments division. Sure. That well, that's awesome. That I mean, that explains his lab coat in the picture of him that I found. <laughs> there you, you go. Know? Yeah. After the war, Jeffries became a professor and the chair of the physics department at North Carolina Agricultural and Technical University, where he worked from 1946 to 1949. So he was able to take whatever he was doing at the Met Lab <laughs> and use that knowledge and experience as a physics professor. So chances are he was doing something technical or else a technical university would not have employed yeah. him. Yeah, right? So his colleague from the Met Lab, Harold Delaney, uh, who was another black man employed by the Met Lab, um, was also actually working at the same university, but in a different department at the same time. So Harold Delaney was working there in the chemistry department at the same time that Jeffries was a professor in the physics department. So I think that's kind of interesting that uh, these, these two black men were using their skills that had been endorsed by the government to get better jobs in higher education than perhaps they would have been able to before the Manhattan Project. Oh, definitely. Yeah, um, I think when uh, when things kind of um, opened up, you know, to the limited degree that they did, I'm sure uh, mm -hmm. these were some scientists and some, uh, you know, engineers that were pretty well sought after, you would think. Yeah, and that's that's one of the things. That's why I mentioned uh, earlier the fact that it's that there is a racist overtone to the fact that these men were not hired by the the lab system, by the national lab system. You know, these these their white counterparts were being fought over for who could work where. And yet these guys, well, yeah, they're getting better jobs at universities, but they're not being hired by the government. They're being told, well, okay, thanks for, thanks, thanks for the work you did. Bye. Have fun. Try and find somewhere else. And they were able to find somewhere else, but that's not really the point that I'm trying to make. The point is they were not offered the same opportunities. They were offered better opportunities than they had been before but not the same opportunities. I think that that's, you know, why uh, we have things such as Black History Month and why, um, mm -hmm. you know, why I appreciate you looking into, you know, these in, the, the individuals in our kind of story here. It's not a story in our history, I guess. Um, 
narratives. That's to of give them narrative. There you go. There you go. Um, and, and you know, I, I didn't mean to use the word story. I always think of. No, you you're know, fine. That's yeah. what we do. We're James storytellers. That's peach. what we're podcasters. <laughs> yeah, I yeah mean, we're podcasters. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll use this to take a moment to say anything that we say is you know definitely Anna and I uh, are fully responsible yes. for the things that we say. Uh, but we are storytellers. Yes. But you know, it's it's in the context of history, and you're telling the the narratives or the history of these individuals, and it's neat to. Yeah. Set aside some time to uh, talk about these men that were able to do such wonderful things and overcome terrific obstacles uh, to get to yeah. where they ended up being. And and so I appreciate you putting a podcast like this together for us uh, just to kind of bring some of these things to light. Well, I think that it's important that Jeffries gets his due. Um, I, I think that it's important that all of the black scientists and and laborers uh you know menial work is not has been undervalued for a long time and everything that went into the manhattan project was an important part of the manhattan project so that's that's where i'm at a lot of the scientists and engineers get the glory but they wouldn't Mm -hmm. have been able to do it if there wasn't someone there pumping gas (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> and running around cleaning happened. up their messes. If there wasn't someone yeah. cleaning up the messes. Uh, yeah, these are people exactly. of equal importance. No matter what your you know, station in life is, uh, you are not less or more important than anyone else. You may think you are, uh, but really mm-hmm. it ends there. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah we're, we're all and equal is... no matter our station, no matter what, what it is that we do for a living. We're all the same. And that's the point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there you go. Um, now we're getting philosophical. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Yeah, that's maybe okay. we should call I mean, it there before of, we get too philosophical. Cool. But okay. that was what this one's about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So on that note, um, I just wanted to say thank you to David for being a great co-host. Thank you to the museum for allowing us to do this podcast. But you know who we really have to thank? It's those Atomic History patron members. You guys are the only reason that this podcast is still going almost almost a year. I think we had the idea in February of yes, last year. Yes, and we, that's when um, it started getting so, developed. Yeah. Absolutely. So this is... This is all thanks to you guys. We really appreciate it. And please feel free to share the podcast with your friends and family. We would love some new listeners. Um, If you ever have any questions about the podcast or comments, we are happy to hear them. Please email email us at info at nuclearmuseum.org. And thank you to you, Anna, for again, for researching all of this this podcast putting all the work into it we really i really appreciate it and uh it made no for problem some thanks interesting for explaining listening. the science to me just a little bit i yeah <laughs> as much as i mean that's it's a little out of my depth on that one of course but if that's all i guess we'll wrap it up there and we'll end it like we always do uh by saying don't forget to wash your hands to wash your hands Radioactive Waves has been presented by the National Museum of Nuclear Science and History. Join us next time for more interviews, histories, and insights on topics like the Manhattan Project, science and pop culture, the atomic age, and the differences between nuclear fact and fiction.